Beginning in verse 1 of Jonah chapter 1, we'll read all the way to verse 16. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give you a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Here's a common story that most children will remember because of a few key characters, namely Jonah, if you remember the title, and namely the next verse tells us other, the other key character that sometimes even overshadows Jonah, a great fish. But I, 
as I began to show you this last week, I think what you'll find, this whole book is only 48 verses long. And in this 48 verses, you will see almost every key ingredient to understanding the entire world. In these 48 verses are the ingredients to understanding everything. If you want to explain the way things are, we, we get a framework from these 48 verses. We're invited to have a biblical worldview, to see things in light of who God is and now then who we are and why then things are the way that they are. So we saw last week the first three verses begin to introduce to us this kind of powerful truth, I think. The first two ingredients, the word of the Lord comes, God speaks, and then what happens? Jonah flees. God speaks, God gives a word God speaks as we saw through the entirety of the Bible that God has the power to speak and when he speaks the world comes into existence that which is dead comes to life that which is nothing or dark comes something the creation of all things the recreation of all things all by his word but here's what we find when we look at that even in spite of that God speaks people run and hide the first two things to understanding Jonah, and again, using it as a cipher to understand all of the world, God speaks, says, here's who I am, this is who you are, live accordingly, live peacefully and gladly inside of what I've created for you, and what do they do? People run. People run. People rebel against God. God speaks, and then people run. I wanted to show you the way that we can kind of begin to understand and maybe sympathize with with Jonah, you'll see this is a map of modern-day Iraq. And this small, tiny red dot right here in the middle of the map is the city of Nineveh. The darker area would have been where the Assyrian Empire kind of began and began to accrue its power. The lighter color is where it expanded between the 6th and 8th century B.C. Most historians would say that the Assyrian Empire, the capital city being Nineveh, being spoken of here, where Jonah's been sent, is really the first modern empire. Up to that point, different city-states and tribes warred together, sometimes banded together. You see this again throughout the, throughout the New Testament. But, but historically, something radically changes. And the Assyrians, the Akkadians, come up from the southeast here. And, and the first modern understanding of empire, that a, a nation-state can control and conquer and have power over other nation-states, begins. And that little red dot, that city of Nineveh, in case you're tempted to think, well, I would have done better than Jonah, we realize that God calls Jonah to do something different than most other prophets. He gives him a word, and the word isn't just something he's supposed to speak. The word includes something he's supposed to do and leave his comforts, leave his home, and go to the capital city of the largest power in the world at that particular time. And in case you're tempted to not sympathize with Jonah, I told you last week, Google the, the city Mosul, Iraq. Because the modern-day city of Mosul that's currently in the middle of a siege between ISIS and other forces is the present-day location of what used to be Nineveh some 3,000 years before. So in case you're tempted to go like, well, I would have been better than Jonah, I'd be like, okay, maybe. Uh, but God calls Jonah to go and to preach this, the character and nature of all things and of God to these people. And I want you to understand exactly how big a deal that is, uh, geographically speaking at least. So you'll see there, this is the Mediterranean Sea across the middle. Tarshish, as they understand it, would have been on the, the, around the southernmost tip of Spain on the west side. Um, and then Nineveh, as we just saw, as you kind of zoom out, you can see right over here where modern-day Kuwait would be. 
um, and, and, and you can kind of the, you see the Persian Gulf in the, the corner there. And he, he would have crossed that to go about five, 550 miles to, to, to Nineveh. And instead, he's like, you know what? I'm actually going to go a couple thousand miles in the opposite direction. Right? So I want you to get the idea. It wasn't like he was on the way to Nineveh. He was like, no, I'm, I'm out of here. Um, it'd be, I don't, it's hard to, to give you a parallel. It'd be like if, if God called you to like, I don't know, you know, walk or drive to Chicago, roughly five to 600 miles, and instead you got on a plane and flew to, I don't know, Central America, which is about two to 3,000 miles away from where you are sitting currently. Be like, hey, I need you to go to Chicago. I'm actually going to go to Panama. It's like, not the same thing. And, and that's what's going on here. I want you to understand what, what when I say that, that God speaks and that people run, Jonah is the place where we see this. We see that God speaks and people flee. Because what we find out here, and this is what's powerful, one of the most important things I think that the Bible teaches us is that our problem isn't necessarily just information. What we need isn't just informational theology. We need a transformational theology. We need what we know and what we believe to actually change us. Jonah represents that for us. And one of the best ways to think about some of these things is to read a case study like the book of Jonah about what this looks like. A person who on the surface would have professed all of the things that we, you know, biblically up to this point would have been true about God, about himself. He would have had it all figured out. We find out he's a prophet, uh, a substantial and an important prophet amongst the people of Israel. He was friends with the king. He had political power. And what he said, the king listened to. And we'll get to that even later. But this was a man who, on the surface, you would have thought, this is God's man. He has it all figured out. But under the surface, you saw the map. He's running as quickly and as far away from God as possible. And this is important because this is kind of the culture in which we live. Uh, we we kind of live in a culture right now that tells you what you need is more information. Your problem is an educational problem. You don't know. But what I would argue, and this little case study of Jonah teaches us, that you don't really just need to know more. What you know has to actually change you. A lot of people have really solid formal theology. What they believe about God, what they confess about God, is, has good form and good structure, has biblical basis. But what happens, we see the book of Jonah here, this character, is that the problem isn't what he said or what he believed. The problem was the gap between what he believed and what he actually functionally lived out. Jonah's functional theology was a wreck. Again, we saw maybe not 180 degrees in the wrong direction, but functionally, eh, what, 150 degrees in the wrong direction? as close to walking in the opposite direction of what's right as you, can, as you can imagine going. And this is true for us. This is kind of the, 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 the air that we breathe, that you can know what is right and still functionally believe and operate under what's wrong. It's the first story was this way, right? God says, look, hey, Adam, Eve, you got one job. This is you. This is not you. And they're like, is it? Okay. And, and they walk off, right? This is this is the nature of humanity. In fact, this is important because this still exists in our culture that we really believe your problem is that you don't know. And as a result, then, you are aware of and informed about a lot of stuff that you know but has no difference. It makes no difference in your life. You see this every once in a while. We have, we have months devoted to causes that make no difference in your life. And the way you see this in our current culture that, that kind of buys into the flaw that Jonah bought into, 
Um, we, we honestly believe that how you fix something is, you'll hear this, is we raise awareness of it. You caught this? And so if we just raise awareness of it, we, we're under the myth. We really believe we've done something. Like we've actually fixed something. Now, I'm not against that, but what I am against is, again, the disconnect between what you, you are now aware of and what you actually do. And here's what I would bet. There's a bunch of you who probably poured ice water on your head for ALS, right? And probably a very statistically very small amount of people in this room that gave any cents or dollars or any money towards it. Because that's, that's the place we now live. We devote entire months to raising awareness about things that you will do nothing about nothing and even though you know it and you're aware of it and now now it's in here your life will not change one bit won't cost you anything won't do a thing right anybody anybody got remember a guy by the name of coney this is where this was launched a man who was a warlord in northeastern africa and and we this massive awareness was raised uh i want to say it was probably about six years ago something like that um he's still alive but everybody's aware of him, right? We raise awareness about human trafficking, okay? You're aware of it. End it. We all agree. Up here. Stop it. Quit that. But what are you going to do this week as a result of believing that? What are you actually going to do? And therein lies the problem. And therein lies the case study of Jonah, that it's possible to be aware of something, informed about something, and believe rightly about something, and it to have absolutely no effect on your life whatsoever. And sometimes the most infinitely large distance, one of the church fathers tells us, is the distance between your brain and your heart. The stuff you know and the stuff that actually matters to you. And this is what we see in Jonah. A prophet, a man, by the word of the Lord, given identity, and he chooses a different identity. He chooses to run. And this story of this person begins to illustrate what I think ought to be illustrated about our own lives, that we would, in the end, rather have a different identity. We'd rather live for ourselves. We'd rather consider our own desires than what God desires. And therein lies the nature, as we saw last week, of a sickness that leads unto death, according to Kierkegaard. The nature of sin. The nature of the thing that destroys us. Our desire to take what is good and right, that we know is helpful, that gives life from the word of God and say, I actually want to be God today. I would rather be in charge today. I know what God says about my sex life, about my money, about my relationships, about my identity. I know all that, but today I'm going to be God. And what I know about my sense of self is much more important than what he knows. This is, this is the disconnect. And, it's, and if, we're, if we're, we're honest, it's, it's only about this far, right? Between what you know and then what really moves you, what really you believe that causes you to live in a certain way. So the first two components we see lay the groundwork. God speaks, people run off. They would rather, you and I, on a regular basis, would rather find our identity in anything else other than God. But then you see these three components for the verses we just read. You see this, after God speaks and people run, you see this sleep of dread or sleep of death, the deathly sleep. Then you see a stormy hope and you see an ownership of guilt. So I want to walk through these things in the text and begin to show you how, again, this, is, this, this might open your eyes to understand everything about the Bible and everything about the possible world. The first thing you see, so we saw this last week, right? There's a, he's supposed to go somewhere. God tells him to go somewhere and we see in verse 3, he paid the fare and went down into it. 
to go with them to to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So the nature of what Jonah is doing is made clear. He knows what he's supposed to do, but here's what I would kind of posit here. This, uh, this uh, This little boat that's on its way in the opposite direction, here's what I'll tell you and what I know to be true. Um, this boat is always on time. This boat that leads you away from where God wants you to go, it's always on time. And for Jonah, I would say the same thing to you. It's always affordable. It's always within your price range. Like, so, so here's the thing. If you are looking for an excuse not to do what God tells you to do, you will always find it. It will always be right on time. And you might even give God, God credit for it. You might, Jonah probably was like, how providential. Look a boat. How much is the fare? I have just that amount. Thank you. And I would say this is true in our own lives. Like if you want to rebel, like if you want to impose your sense of identity onto the world and not let God speak it, friend, it's always affordable. There's always going to be options. This is why we say we're careful about how we read the circumstances into God's will. <laughs> we're careful. We go like, I see these opportunities. Like, yeah, you see it. But here's what Jonah teaches us. There's always an opportunity to run away from God. It's always going to be within your reach. If you're looking for an excuse to be someone other than God called you to be, it will always be within reach. And so we're careful. We're, we're always very careful because we know that if we're not, if we're not careful, then what we find in our hands will be the thing that feels right, seems convenient, seems appropriate, almost providential, but in the end is the thing that we really wish was what we were going to do all along. And it takes us in the opposite direction. So here's his response. Like he, he affordably found a way to run away from God. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was threatened to break apart and the mariners were afraid. Everyone on, on the boat was terrified. These are, these are men who sailed for a living. I don't know if you've seen any stories about sailors, uh, but they're not wimpy kind of men. Uh, they're, they're pretty kind of tough guys. And it says they're what? Terrified. They're like, this is it. This is where we die. And they start to throw the cargo overboard. But where was, jo- where was Jonah? It says, but Jonah, in verse five, in the middle there, Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was what? Fast asleep. It's an interesting word here. This, this word is the same concept that we see in Genesis chapter 2, right? When we see that, that God puts Adam to sleep, this picture of God like performing surgery on a man, like putting him under anesthesia, he's out, right? And, then, and God's doing something and he doesn't even know it. He's completely unaware of what God is doing, right? That's the same word and same concept we see here, that Jonah, even in the midst of like everyone's trying to not die, they're scared and terrified of what's going on. Jonah's doing what? He's sleeping. And not just, not just a little asleep, like deep sleep. And we find out a key feature of human nature. That is the sleep of dread. This is the most common human response to disappointment. The most common human response to sin, to failure, it's avoidance. It's this desire to not even be conscious of it. Now, I'm not talking about the sadness that happens. I'm talking about what happened here. He had an identity. And when that identity began to fail, his first response was to avoid it, to, to go as far away and from God in his own consciousness as he possibly could. He just goes into a trance. 
what I would show you here, and this will teach you a little bit about yourself and a little bit about the human experience, is that this is common. This is what people do. Whenever, whenever, you, whenever you encounter something like you just disagree with, you avoid it. You just run from it. You silence it. You don't engage it. And so, and so then you're just intimidated by it or you don't want to confront it or you just, you're just afraid of it. And so you just run from it. This happens all the time on a regular basis. You're faced with something that, that confronts your own failure, your own sense of identity, isn't getting to what you really wanted. You've, you've wrapped up your sense of purpose, wrapped up your sense of identity and contentment into it, and it implodes. And it creates what we saw last week that Kierkegaard teaches. It creates not just a sadness, but an existential despair. Like the kind of sadness, like, how am I even able to go on? Have you seen this? This is, I'll apply this specifically to parents because that's what we're, this is a big deal for what we're doing today. It's like, there's a way to love and cherish a child um, that is honoring God, glorifying God. Your identity is in Christ and you pass it on to a child. And then if you're, if you're not careful, this is very tempting in our current society. They're, probably our parents and grandparents were raised by, by parents that were more distant and aloof. They were more committed to jobs and tasks and so they were probably more distant to, to most of us in this room. And the pendulum has swung to where now a good parent worships a child. And we just, opposite direction. And so there's ways to glorify God, have your identity in him, and then pass it on to a child. And then there's this other thing that's pretty popular right now. Worship your child. Find your identity in your children. Find your identity in them. Don't let anything happen. And you'll see this like... One, of the, uh, one, one author, I remember, kind of tells this story of this kind of existential despair of two parents that watched their child kind of rebel against the way that they had taught him and begun to, the child had begun to like do their own thing and kind of gone off the, uh, gone off the reservation, just completely distanced himself from the parents. And they both experienced despair in two different ways. One parent was sad and mourned and, and was broken by it, but the other one went into the death sleep. The existential despair that comes from putting your life into something that doesn't turn out like you planned. Are you familiar with that? I mean, there's the kind of sadness that comes from failure and disappointment, but then there's the kind of the dread. The thing that rocks us to the core. I don't even want to get up today. I would rather sleep through because the thing that I hoped in, the thing that I wanted more than anything else has failed. You've been there? Jonah paints a picture of what this looks like. You put your, all your stock into that identity and then the storm comes and rips it to pieces. The human tendency is just, to, I, I want to go away. I want to avoid this. And you're not just sad when it fails. You experience a despair of life this sleep of dread, this fast asleep, this literally obliviousness to what God is doing. Obliv like, again, just like Adam was oblivious to what God was doing, he was knocked out, unconscious, sedated, under anesthesia, if you will. And here's Jonah the same way, running from God, and then as best as he can, he's in a place of depression and sleep and despair in which he is oblivious to what God is doing. You're not just sad. You experience existential despair. Some of you know this. And if you don't, you're on your way to knowing this. Like you put your hope in a 
in a relationship, in a boyfriend or a girlfriend, maybe even a spouse. Put your hope in that promotion, that job, that achievement, that thing you want to accomplish, that status you want to attain for yourself. You put, you put your, all your stock, all of your eggs into that one basket. This is the thing that's going to pay off. I've been chasing this thing. It's over the rainbow. I'm going to get there. And you know what happens. We saw this in a book of Ecclesiastes. Sometimes the worst thing isn't that you never get over the rainbow. Sometimes the worst thing is that you get there and you still find despair. The room's full of people who can speak this kind of wisdom, right? Yeah. Once I get married, it'll all be fixed. Talk to some of these people about being married. Once I have children, then I'll have arrived. Talk to some of these people around here with children. Once I make that amount of money, talk to some of these people who are dressed nicer than the rest of us, right? <laughs> Ask them. Did that give you joy? Because these are the kinds of conversations that I think Jonah forces us to have. He forces that, that, that this is the thing you wanted, and the result then is despair, a deep despair. And suddenly something happens, and their life explodes. They fail morally, or they rebel in some way, or something just crazy happens like this. And that thing you put your hope in falls to pieces. We saw this last week, unless you come to grips with the things that have competition over your own soul, over your own heart, over your own identity, the things that have the grip over the centrality of your own life and identity, if you're not aware of those things, then functionally you will be completely divorced from what you know. You will, you will in your heart believe in something else that you exalt for yourself, impose upon the world, and take what you know to be right and, and just completely distance yourself from it. And friend, a despair is coming. A despair is coming. So what happens? The response then is this. Call it a stormy hope, one author calls it. The, I would call it hope in the form of a storm. Now, how does God begin to work? How does God begin to, to shape us and to draw us back to himself? Almost every single time, he sends a storm. He sends a storm. I, I've, I've yet to meet the person that like wakes up on a regular basis um, like feeling great and saying, boy, my, boy, the things that I love are really disordered and I just really have, I have just really unhealthy priorities in my life. And, and, and in the midst of like the calm and peace, they change their priorities and they radically alter what they're doing. No one does that. What happens is a storm hits and you realize whatever your priorities, however they were ordered, whatever the thing is you were you know, functionally living for, when it falls apart, then you're like, oh man, I got to find something else. Here's what I want you to consider. It says here that the Lord, verse 4, the Lord is the one that hurled the great wind upon the sea and the mighty tempest that came on the sea. A lot of the storms that you and I live through, if we're honest, are just a result of our own sin. <laughs> uh, most of the storms I've endured, I brought on myself. Self-inflicted wounds, my own mistakes, caused trouble, and I had to deal with them. But here's something we find, that even in those storms that you bring on yourself, it's possible that God can do the same thing, that God can begin to turn around your worldview. It says, a mighty wind came, and everyone was afraid. So the first thing that we, we see here, when it God works us back to himself, God sends a storm. But the second thing, the environment exposes your true identity. 
I, I meet with people on a regular basis that are confused about what to do next. I don't know what I want to do. And here's what I would tell you. I tell you on a regular basis, some of you, you hate me saying this. Um, this is why for us in the life of the church, we believe that worship involves our time, treasure, and talent. What you really value, what you really spend your money on, what you really spend your time on. Uh, and then th- these kinds of things that you actually put your best effort towards. So people are like, well, I don't know what to do with my life. I'm like, I don't know what I really value or what I want to do. Okay, show me, show me your calendar. Okay, show me that. Uh, show me your, I don't know the right word for this because we don't have this. I would just say Rolodex. No one has a Rolodex. Um, but essentially, show me your list of friends. I don't want to say your Facebook friends list because those aren't, I mean, they're friends with quotes on it. But show me the people you're invested in, okay? So show me, show me where you're spending your time on your calendar. Show me the, the people you're investing in. And then last me, let me, last, let somebody see your bank account. And I'll tell you exactly where you're going because this is what you're investing in. I don't know what to do. I don't know what, I do. I know where you're going. Where do you spend your money? Where do you spend your time? And what people are you invested in? That will tell you everything you know, need to know about who you are. And we see the same thing here. The environment exposed his true identity. I don't know if you caught that. It was the pagans. It, there weren't other God worshipers. There weren't other prophets on the boat. It was the pagans that exposed him. And they exposed him at his core, didn't they? Did you catch the questions they asked? They asked identity questions like to the core, to the soul. They want to find out who's responsible for this. And they say, you see this in verse 8, they, cry, they say to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? What do you do? Where do you spend your time? Tell us what you do. Where are you from? Like what people are you? Who are you really? What kind of a person are you based on where you've come from? What is your country? What do you call yourself? Where do you really get your sense of self? What people are you? Did you catch it? Those were the pagans asking the questions. Those, those weren't the God worshipers. Those were the, just the people who could look at the situation and see something was wrong and go, hey, who are you? No, really. We saw this last week. Who told you that? Who taught you that? I'm this. This is who I am. Who, who taught you that? Cite your sources. Because you seem to be quoting a sacred text when you say that. Where'd you get that information? And the environment exposes the person. Here's a, here's a push because in the end, the, the crux of this entire, of this entire book, the, the vector that this leads people is for the sake of the city of Nineveh. God loves the city and he starts to work this out for the sake of the city of Nineveh. Right? He's doing this, he's shaping and, and kind of exposing Jonah for the sake of the city that he loves. That's where he's ultimately kind of leading them. And here, here's what I would kind of push on you. Like, if, you, if you're kind of wondering who you are, sometimes this is, I'm going to be careful how I say this. Uh, stop hanging around with all the people who call themselves Christians. Uh, try, try surrounding yourself with people of the actual city that God's called you to live in and ask them to answer some of these questions. Because I don't know if you know this, <laughs> Christians are often, people who call themselves Christians, are the most skilled at lying about who they really are, or at least hiding it, deceiving people about it. You don't believe me? What's the story of Jonah? This is a prophet. Just push it. If if the pagans are the ones that ultimately kind of expose what he really values and what he really believes, then maybe one of the best things we can do is we work our way towards Nineveh here. How about you surround yourself with people that don't already agree with you? How about you surround yourself with some people and say, who am I really? What do I really value? What am I really like to be around? Stop hanging around with other people who already believe like you and just see how it goes. 
And I think what you'll find is here, the environment will expose you. And you'll either fit right in, <laughs> you'll either fit right in and go, you're one of us. You're not a God worshiper, you're just like us. Or, here's what I think they'll do, they'll actually be the ones that call you out. I see hypocrisy here. Now here's what we find out. It says that he knows what's right in his head. Did you catch it? I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. And I love you. Did you notice what he says? He says, the Lord who made the sea and the dry land. He even sees, look, look, I'm here, and this storm is sent by my God. This sea, this tempest, this is under the sovereignty of God. He has control here. And when they heard it, now, the first time they heard about it, they said when the storm hits, it said they were afraid. Did you catch that? But then in verse 10, it says that they were, and this is, this, is, this is polite, isn't it, for a bunch of sailors? They were not just afraid now, they were exceedingly afraid. How, how afraid are you? Exce- I'm, I'm exceedingly terrified. I'm exceedingly afraid. This is, this is them. They've already thrown the, they've thrown the cargo off. They've abandoned their mission to bring the cargo from point A to point B, and now they're just like, how can we not die? And it turns out that they found out that Jonah had already confessed to them that he was already running from the Lord. And so we see something happen here. This is the, probably the last component. There's an ownership of guilt. Jonah just takes an absolute ownership of his own responsibility. Here's what I would say. Like if, until this happens, like the grace of God through miraculous means that happens for the rest of this book, you won't have access to it. That di- unless you recognize a disconnect between what you think you know to be right, but what you actually do. This is what I know is right, but I, all, I always do this. Then functionally, actually, that disconnect will, will always bring storms. It will always bring despair. It will bring this death sleep where you just want to deny who you really are. You want to you hide and curl up in a ball and not admit what really is going on deep inside your soul. And until you admit it, until you come to terms with it, say, this, this is what I'm responsible for. We come to find out for the entirety of the rest of the scripture, the word, the word we use in the New Testament is the word repentance. It's this recognition that, look, again, that's why I showed you the map. The way that I'm going is not the way God intended for me. I'm going this direction, but repentance is a military term used in, in the New Testament. It, it's a military term that literally means to about face to turn and go 180 degrees in the opposite direction. So there's this picture we see here of repentance. And I love it because it doesn't use the word sin and it doesn't even use the word repentance. It just says that he's exposed for what he is and then he says he owns up to who he really is. This is who God's created me to be. This is what's true about me. And this is what I'm actually doing. Even though I know what's right, I am fleeing from what I know to be right because functionally I wish something else were true. So here's, I, this is hard. I, I, all I know to tell you is it's just to kind of lead by example on this um, and not take up all day, um, but to own up for what you're responsible for. I got to speak to the men uh, at, at the leadership conference or this, uh, this men's summit we talked about, and, and Christian leadership is different than worldly leadership. Worldly leadership is a boss that tells you what to do. Christ as a leader says, I'll lay down my life for you. He doesn't send people to die for their cause. He's the first one to die in their place. And that means that, at least as far as it's up to me, owning up to that looks specific. It looks like Jesus. So here's the thing that you need to know. No one gets thrown under the bus here, not by me. 
if something goes wrong, like building or whatever, it's my fault. Somebody messes up. We're not going to go, well, it's their fault. You know, I'm going to be the first one to say, man, I asked him to do that. I put him in that position. That was my fault. Why? Because worldly leadership says, you're fired, get out of here. You're making us look bad. Christ-like leadership says, I'm responsible. I'll die first. I mean, I could send a whole bunch of soldiers out to die for us, but here's the thing, I'm going to go first. This is what this looks like. This means the, to be the first one to admit. So here, let me give you at least three apologies. Um, so even this last week, we were, we were, in, this, uh, we were in the school, and I, I took a picture, and basically I took a selfie uh, of our church, and I made a, an inappropriate comment about taking selfies. And, and as is my custom, I tend to just deflect with humor. And I owe you an apology for that. And I hope you can forgive me for that. And I've, this is not the first, this has been multiple times. I mean, like six weeks ago, I was making an analogy. Um, I was illustrating something out of the book of Ecclesiastes, and I pushed hard on it, but it was kind of a half-baked idea. And, and, and what I said, it just kind of made people in the room cringe. I was like, ah, oh, that's not, I owe you an apology for that. Uh, it was a couple weeks ago, I, I was an analogy in a, in, in a sermon. I had, had kind of one of the things, it just kind of came to mind. Maybe it was the right thing to do, maybe it was not. But I ended up like quoting kind of a, a story without the person's permission. And I had to go to apologize. I'm sorry, that was, that was wrong. So here, I won't just push you into this. I'll just start and say, you people have shown an incredible amount of grace to me. Um, and if you ever just go, well, that's just Jonathan. He's just crazy. Well, I, uh, okay, maybe. I love you for that. That's kindness towards me. Um, but on the other hand, like, that's, that's, that might disconnect us from what we know to be true and what we functionally actually do. Listen, I want you to cringe. I'm not afraid of that. But I want you to cringe because maybe the Holy Spirit is working in and through your sense of identity and kind of messing with some stuff. I'm not afraid to offend you, but I want you to be offended. <laughs> I want you to be offended by the gospel, not by my foolishness. I want you to be shocked, but, but not by my own arrogance. I want you to be shocked by how good God is. And so for you, if we're going to see this happen in the life of our church, it starts where we just go, this is who God really is. And I'm currently running from it. Love it. It gives identity language. This is who I am. This is what God's done. This mess, God's sovereign over it, and this is what I'm doing. Here's what I'll tell you when you, when you begin to do this, when you begin to kind of let go, this is what I'll warn you with. It seems like suicide. That moment of recognizing the disconnect between what you think you know or wish you knew to be true and what you actually believe in your life and giving up, turning away from it, recognizing what's actually happening, it will feel like suicide. Doesn't that sound like suicide? Guys, throw me overboard. Or to anyone else who would see that, you'd think, well, I guess the despair has overtaken him, and now he's done. And it looks like suicide. It looks like he's giving up. It looks like he's, I'm, I'm over. I'm, 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 over. I'm done with this. I'm going to stop running. And it looks like suicide, and it may even feel like it. But I want you to read to what happens. Verse 15, it says, So they picked up Jonah, and they hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. What seemed like suicide was actually the solution. 
And so how can I tell you all this? How can I tell you that, that the sleep of despair, of dread, is, 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 is what I think is the beginnings of exposing that disconnect between what you really believe and worship in your heart versus what you say you believe anywhere else? How can I point you to this? How can I expose this and then draw this into something where the storms are actually good? The storms are actually a gift of God. How can I do this? How can I ask you to commit yourself to, to, to it, admitting what's really wrong and your responsibility in it? It's really simple. Because Jesus was thrown overboard for us. Verse 15 it says, They picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from raging. You see, God has sent a storm of his wrath and justice. And you and I deserve to die in it. We deserve to drown in it. Oh, but friend, there was another man and he was thrown overboard. And instead of the storm of God's wrath and the storm of God's justice destroying and consuming us, it consumed him. And instead of the storm of God's wrath and justice that we deserved, consuming us and destroying us, did you catch it? It ceased from raging. What was once raging over you and me, Jesus has now been thrown over in our place on our behalf, and all that is left is peace and tranquility to remind us of what we deserve and what God has given us that we do not. There's a powerful good news here, and we haven't even gotten to the fish part. <laughs> We, we haven't even gotten to the fish part of the chapter. There's, there's good news to be learned here. There is one who was cast overboard. His own people should have loved him and received him, but they received him not. They threw him overboard so that you and I could get together and celebrate peace and tranquility. And the rage that was bearing down on us, he took. The raging sea was set tranquil and peaceful to remind us who's in control and what God can and does do for us. Friend, there's one greater than Jonah. His name's Jesus. He was thrown overboard. And even just to have your eyes open to the possibility that that's true, not just here, not up here, but like the ways in which that it reorients your entire life, that you trust that he's the one who took our place. He, I deserve that. I deserve to be thrown overboard. I deserve to be kicked out. But he was in my place. Friend, even to begin to consider the possibility of that truth is the beginnings of new life, the beginning of peace, and a true and eternal and existential tranquility. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your goodness and your provision. Uh, we thank you that you have done something for us that we could not do for ourselves. You have extended mercy to us in places where we deserved your wrath and punishment. Uh, God, if there's some in this room that maybe even now they're uh, just the thought of believing that Jesus is who he says he is just seems far-fetched and bizarre. How would we begin to consider the possibility that you really have done something, you really have accomplished something that gives us new life it gives us a fresh start. For some of us, would you just maybe give us an awareness of our own sinfulness? Uh, give us a, a poignant reminder of the places where uh, we have things to confess, we have 
thoughts to repent of, uh, immaturity to turn away from, foolishness to abandon. Would you begin to expose some of that in us and remind us that there's, there's grace waiting on this. We, we, can do, we, we can allow the light into those dark places because there was one who was thrown overboard for us. Maybe for some of us, we know this. We know this. We've seen Jesus. We, we see ourselves deserving to be thrown overboard and we see Jesus going in our place. Would you just begin to stir that up in us? Close the distance between what is intellectually true in our own heads and what is functionally true in our own hearts and lives. Begin to expose that disconnectedness. Remove that despair, that sleep of dread and avoidance. And replace that dread with a sense of joy. Uh, We have nothing to fear. Uh, There is one who went overboard in our place. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.